morning we're going to look at the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Mark 1, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we talk about the gospel of God, as we talk about the gospel of the kingdom, I want to ask that you will send your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can see this good news. Father, I'm afraid that we have overlooked this central message of Scripture. So, Father, may we see the King. May we see this kingdom. May we see that we are citizens of this great kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, currently we're in a series called Stewards of Sacred Trusts. And a few weeks ago we talked about the fact that we are stewards of God's Word. Uh, this morning we want to focus in a little more and talk about the fact that we are stewards of God's Gospel. Uh, the Gospel, of course, is at the very hearts of God's Word. It is central to the Christian message. Therefore, it behooves us to examine it again and again and to do so in light of Scripture. Now, I'm almost embarrassed to say that because it's so obvious. I say almost. But I'm not embarrassed to say that. Because here's the truth. Many things that we have learned We've learned them because we have been taught them by a pastor or a teacher or our tradition, but we really haven't examined them closely in light of Scripture. 
many of us know that we just had certain assumptions about passages or different areas of doctrine. And then someone challenged us, and all of a sudden we said, oh, wow, I never saw that before. I never saw it from that perspective. Now, I submit to you this morning that that's true not only of difficult areas of doctrine like eschatology, perhaps. It also happens with the Gospel. An area that we think we really understand. A doctrine that we really think that we have examined and have a good grasp of. It may be that maybe we don't understand it as clearly as we do. If I was to ask you to define the Gospel this morning, would you have a definition ready? Right now, do you have a definition on the tip of your tongue that you could give if I were to call on you right now? Don't panic. I won't call on you right now. (laughs) But would you have an answer ready? Would your answer include something like, Jesus died for our sins. And through faith in His atoning work on the cross, we are saved. Now, don't misunderstand me. That is parts of the Gospel. That is a big part of the Gospel. That is an important part of the Gospel. But, but, that is not the whole of the Gospel. What is the Gospel that Jesus preached? When we look through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see Jesus preaching the Gospel, what Gospel did He preach? Or we can ask the question this way, what was the central message that occupied the preaching of Jesus? What did He talk about more than any other topic? And what He talked about more than any other topic, and this was His Gospel message, was the Kingdom of God. That's what He talked about. Recently, I was listening to a message by R.C. Sproul entitled, The Gospel of the Kingdom. And he made this statement, and he's not the first person to make this statement. Many have made this statement. But the one theme that connects all of Scripture, that runs through all of Scripture, and connects the Old Testament with the New Testament, is the theme of the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God is promised in the Old Testament, and it arrives in Jesus Christ, and it is fulfilled in the New Testament. Look very clearly at Mark 1, 14 and 15. John is arrested. He's put in prison. And this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He comes into Galilee. And we're told that He's proclaiming the good news, the Gospel. That's what Gospel means. The good news of God. That's His message. His message is the Gospel. But let's just pause for a moment. Let's pretend like we've never read the Gospels, okay? Pretend like this is all brand new to you. You've never cracked the Bible in your life. You're opening it up for the very first time and you read that Jesus preaches the good news of God. And you're asking, I wonder what the good news of God is. I've never heard this before. What is the good news of God? What did this Jesus of Nazareth preach? Well, we're told. He came proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, the time is 
fulfilled. Not will be fulfilled, has been fulfilled. The time is fulfilled in His coming. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Is at hand. Right right here, right in front of your face. In other words, the time has come. The time that was predicted in the Old Testament has finally arrived. The kingdom is at hand. That's the good news. And He calls upon people to repent and believe in the Gospel. The Gospel that the time has finally come for the arrival of the kingdom. Now, I was taking a class one time, and I've mentioned this before, and we were asked to give a definition of the Gospel, and not one single person said anything about the kingdom. Only one person talked about the ascension and reign of Christ connected to the Gospel. Which is why I say I think we've missed out on the big picture of the Gospel. Now, let me show you a few other passages so that you see this really is what Jesus preached. Turn also to Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's the same thing we read in Mark, but I'm letting you know. Matthew says the same thing. Jesus begins His ministry calling upon people to repent, just like John the Baptist did, because the kingdom is at hand. That's why you need to repent, because the kingdom is at hand. If you don't repent, you can't enter into the kingdom. And then verse 23 And He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the what? Tell me. Kingdom. Kingdom. I want you to see that. The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, by the way, what's the connection between His preaching of the kingdom and His healing of different diseases? I'll tell you what the connection is. He's preaching that the kingdom has arrived and in His healing ministry, He's showing the manifestation of the kingdom by bringing healing to people. Turn ahead to Matthew 11. Verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? So, John the Baptist, believe it or not, is, is wavering a little bit and he's asking, now, are, are you the Christ? Saying this to Jesus. Or are, are we waiting for another? And Jesus is so gracious, so patient, he brings John assurance. And how does he do it? And Jesus said to them, go and tell John what you hear, that's the message, and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Go back and tell John everything you see and hear and he will be convinced that I am indeed the Christ. 
and we'll get to that in a minute. But he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's, he's healing people. And that's a visible manifestation of the coming of the kingdom. Matthew 9.35, if you turn back just a little bit. Bless you. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Uh, Matthew 24.14 says that the end will not come until the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the nations as a testimony to them. Uh, Luke 4.43, I'm not going to go through all these verses, but Jesus says that He was sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And you see it also in Luke 8.1 and in Luke 16.16. Tell you what, let's look at that verse. That's kind of interesting. Luke 16.16. We read the law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is technically the the very last Old Testament prophet. So the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, after John, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So John is the last of the Old Testament. From John, the good news is preached and now people are forcing their way into it because the kingdom has arrived. Beloved, this is the gospel that Jesus preached. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, this week, I want to talk about the gospel of the king. Next week, I want to talk about the gospel of the kingdom. And we'll see how it goes. There might be a third message of the gospel of the cross. And we'll show how the cross is related to the kingdom as well. But this morning we want to talk about the gospel of the king. And I want to talk about the gospel of king by looking at just two points. I want to look at Old Testament prophecies and the meaning of those prophecies. And then I want to look at the meaning of the term Christ. And then we'll close by showing how this affects our reading of Scripture. First of all, the meaning of Old Testament prophecies. Mark begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to come back to that a little later, but I'm going to say a good paraphrase would be the beginning of the gospel of King Jesus, the Son of God. But right after that introduction by Mark, the first thing he says is, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So Mark begins by saying, I'm going to tell you about the gospel. And the first thing he says is, you need to see that the things prophesied in Isaiah are about to be fulfilled. And that's very important because we have to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament. This is why I say over and over again, we've got to get rid of that uninspired blank page that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. We have to see continuity. We have to see how God is working progressively. Jesus is not all of a sudden arriving on the scene doing a new thing. No. He is fulfilling the expectations that the Jews had. 
Now, did they have some misunderstandings about what the Christ was going to do? Yes, they had many misunderstandings. But, this is important too, they didn't misunderstand everything that was going to take place. They weren't completely wrong. They did understand that God was going to bring His kingdom. They did understand that a king was going to come and that this king was going to reign over them. So they had some misunderstandings, but they did not misunderstand everything. So let's, let's be careful how we evaluate their misunderstanding. And then Mark says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Now actually, there's a combination of two passages, Malachi 3.1 as well as Isaiah 40 verse 3. tell you what, I'll skip over Malachi 3.1, but you can read that later on your own. It's fascinating because it talks about the Lord coming to His temple. And remember, the temple was the house of God, or better yet, the palace of God. So it indicated that God, once again, was coming to dwell among His people. But the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight, is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So turn back to Isaiah, if you will. Now, this is very important. Often, when we see prophecies like this, we say, oh, that's awesome. Uh, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the messenger who comes before Christ. And when you look at Malachi, and it talks about Elijah coming first, remember that Jesus said that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come, so he fulfills that passage in Malachi 4 as well. And then often we see passages that are fulfilled in Christ and we say, this is great, another fulfillment of prophecy. And and we stop right there and we say, this is a great apologetic for unbelievers. We can show how Scripture is inspired because look at how all these prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. And that's true. That's true. But really what Mark is doing by presenting this is he's saying, now I want you to go back and read Isaiah 40 in context and to see that it's being fulfilled in John the Baptist. And we have to ask this question. What is being fulfilled in John the Baptist? We know that he's come to prepare the way of the Lord, but what exactly does that mean? Well, we have to go back. Unless you have it memorized in your mind, you don't have to do that. But let's go back and let's look at the whole passage. So Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries, and now we know that that's John the Baptist, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. If you drop down to verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. And remember, good news means gospel. 
So go up to a high mountain, Jerusalem. Proclaim good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now stop right there. What is the job of John the Baptist to prepare the way for Yahweh who is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is saying, Jerusalem, behold your God. He has finally come. Read the next verse. Behold, the Lord God comes in the person of Jesus Christ with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. It's passages like this that made the Jews think that when Jesus came, He was going to march up to Jerusalem with His army. He was going to slaughter the Romans. He was going to take His seat upon the throne of David and He was going to rule over Israel and He was going to rule over the nations from that throne. Because that's what the prophecy said, did it not? Behold your God who comes with might, who comes to rule His recompense and His reward is with Him. And they said, yes, finally the time has come for the kingdom. The kingdom prophesied in many passages like Daniel 2 that would be a rock that would crush all the other kingdoms and then eventually become a mountain that would fill the whole world. And the Israelites said, yes and amen. Kill the Romans. Again, they weren't entirely right, but they weren't entirely wrong. Jesus did come as their God in fulfillment of prophecy. He did come with might. And I submit to you that He did come to be established as the King who would sit on the throne of David. So Yahweh comes in the person of Jesus. Now, it's fascinating when you think about prophecy, and if you look at it in context, it adds a lot of meaning to different passages. Turn to Romans 10. Romans 10:14. But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written. Where? In Isaiah 52, verse 7. As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. What's the good news? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. What's the good news? Let's just assume we don't know what the good news is. So let's turn back to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, 
who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God, what? Reigns. That's the good news. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. And the good news is Israel, your God reigns. Your God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to take His throne. That's the good news. Isaiah is being fulfilled. Now, why were the Israelites confused? Because they stopped at verse 7. If they had read on and finished the chapter and read on into Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant who would take upon himself our sins and who would die, they would say, now this is fascinating because our God comes to rule, but first our God has to die. They weren't able to put those two things together. They had God coming to reign, which is why they were waiting for the Romans to be demolished. But they couldn't understand God dying. That's why Peter, he makes his great confession in Matthew 16 and he, and he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus just a little while later says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. And then the third day He's going to rise. And Peter says, no! That can't happen because you're the King! You're the King. The King can't die. The King can die. The Christ can die. The Christ has to suffer before He enters into His glory. That progression they couldn't put together. But make no mistake, the prophecies were very clear that Jesus came to rule. Now, you might be thinking, hasn't God always been sovereign? Hasn't the kingdom always been present? R.C. Sproul writes, hasn't the kingdom of God always existed? Hasn't God been the omnipotent Lord from all eternity? Yes. But when the Old Testament speaks of the coming kingdom of God, it refers to God's personal visitation to this fallen world to manifest redemption. The people of Israel in the Old Testament look forward to the day when God's rule would be manifest here on earth in the coming of His Anointed One. That's what they were waiting for. For the reign of God, for the Kingdom of God to be established so that it would be manifest on earth so that people could see it. And isn't that what we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth earth as it is in heaven. That's the point of the kingdom coming so that the reign of God is manifest on the earth. That's why Jesus comes. That's what the prophecies were all about. And Jesus comes as the king. That's the meaning of the prophecies. Now, I also want you to see the meaning of the term Christ. Now, imagine if you will, you're, you're talking to an unbeliever and you ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And they say to you, what, what do you mean the Christ? 
Could you give a one-word synonym for Christ? What answer would you give to them? There are over 500 references to Jesus being the Christ. Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, or simply Christ. Paul talks about it being in Christ. It is mentioned again and again and again. Over 500 times. That's huge. So when we talk about Jesus being the Christ, we need to know what we're talking about. I mentioned this three or four weeks at our at our Bible study, and I was going to apologize for repeating myself here, but I'm not going to apologize for repeating myself because this really is important. And it has to be something not just that we hear one time and say, okay, I understand it, but I want it to be something that you understand, and I want it to be something that enters your understanding and shapes your reading of Scripture so that when you read Christ, you have something very clear in mind. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. We talk about Jesus Christ. It's not His last name. It is a title. Jesus is the Christ. For example, in Acts 5.42, we read, And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So when they were preaching Jesus as the Christ, Christ, what precisely were they preaching? That's the question I have for you so that you understand their message clearly. Now, to help you understand what Christ means, realize that it's just a transliteration of the Greek. The Greek word is Christos. And that's carried over and it's just Christ. But what Christ means is anointed one. That's literally what Christ means. It means anointed one. And it is the equivalent of the Old Testament word Messiah that also means anointed one. So when we say Jesus is the Christ, we're saying Jesus is the anointed one. So we're getting a little closer to a definition now. Now we have to ask, as I've asked many people, who in the Old Testament were anointed. Kings, predominantly. Uh, Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. But predominantly, we have references to kings being anointed again and again and again. Now, I submit to you that Jesus fulfilled all the offices of the Old Testament, the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. But mainly, when we talk about the Anointed One, we are talking about the Promised King. The One who would come and the One who would reign. The One specifically who would sit on the throne of David. So I submit to you that the best synonym for Christ is King. That's why I said Mark 1 can be paraphrased the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the Gospel of King Jesus or Jesus 
the king. And you can see that if we read it that way, wouldn't it be a little clearer what Mark is saying? He is talking about the arrival of the king. Not just the Savior. Okay, this goes back to what I said earlier. We think that the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is the Savior. And He is. But that's a truncated gospel. That's a partial gospel. Jesus is the King who comes to reign. And this King has laid down His life for the sheep or for His subjects. That's the whole gospel, if you will. And part of the reason for the confusion is the word Christ. I've asked people recently, what does it mean? And most people think that the best synonym for Christ is Savior. It's not. It's King. It's the anointed King. And that changes the meaning. So instead of having the beginning of the Gospel of the Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have the beginning of the Gospel King Jesus, the Son of God, which puts the accent on His being the King, not His being the Savior. Again, don't misunderstand. He is both. He's everything. But the accent, the focus, is on Him being the King. That's so important for how we read the Bible. Now, turn, turn to Matthew. Back to Matthew, if you will. I want you to see the difference this makes as you read through the Bible. If the Gospel of the Kingdom and God reigning wouldn't be clear if we had an understanding of what Christ means. The book, this is Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, stop right there. The book of the genealogy of King Jesus, the Anointed One who was to come and reign over Israel. The Son of David, the Son of Abraham. That, that should be obvious. Matthew's announcing this is the genealogy of King Jesus. If He's going to be the King, where does He have to come from? The line of David and the line of Abraham because the King comes from David. That's why the very first reference after saying this is the genealogy of Jesus the Anointed One, He's the Son of David. He qualifies. He fits the profile, if you will. And He also, by the way, fulfills the promises to Abraham because they begin in Abraham, they run through David, and they find their terminus, their focal point in Jesus Christ. And then we have the genealogy from Abraham to David. And then we have from David to the exile. And then we have from the exile to Jacob, look at verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So there's the focus. And this is significant as well. Matthew is also telling us that the end of the exile is coming. The Israelites have been in exile. Yes, many of them have returned to the land, but they're still under the rule of a foreman army. They're still under another nation, Rome. But now Christ has come. The Deliverer, the King, their King has finally come. 
Verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's much we could say about that. But again, note it's bringing it to Christ. Bringing the history of Israel, if you will, to a climax. Because now their king is finally coming. And again, notice that verse 17 says, to the Christ. The focus is on the Christ, the, the anointed one. And then verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Now the birth of King Jesus took place this way. And the message really has to do with the royal birth of Jesus. And that is made clear in what follows because you'll recall in the next chapter that wise men come from the east. And who are these wise men looking for? They're looking for the king. Where is he who has been born king? We've heard that the king of Israel has finally come. And the wise men have come from the east looking for the king. Of course, Herod, the king, is all upset about this. And it's fascinating that he asks the religious leaders, where the Christ was to be born in verse 4. Notice that. In assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Christ and king are synonymous. They're saying, where is the king? And he's saying, okay, well, where is this Christ to be born? That's a synonymous term. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written. And we all know this prophecy. This is Micah 5 too. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Where will the king, where will the Christ come from? He's going to be born in Bethlehem because the prophecy said that the ruler would be born in Bethlehem. King, Christ, ruler, they're all synonymous terms. Mainly, when we talk about Christ, we are talking about the King. And of course, then they come to the King and they bring Him gifts because this King is worthy of their gifts. This King is worthy of their worship. So, in Acts 5.42, when they were teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, they were preaching and teaching Jesus as the King. The Anointed One who is going to come and reign over them. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. Tragically, we often stop short of the coronation of Christ. Acts 2. Now there's there are so many other passages we could go to, but let me just let me close with this. This is Acts two. And and again, I, I was reading in a book on the gospel, and this author stated that in Acts two, the focus is on the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which vindicates his atoning death on our behalf. And I say yes and amen. But But, that's not where Peter stops. 
when Peter is preaching the gospel, he does not stop with the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2.22, we basically have the, the life and ministry of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, because they thought. And then they talk about in 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was no afterthought. It was ordained by God before the creation of the world. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there's the death of Christ. 24, God raised him up loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, and then we have all these Old Testament passages showing that this was prophesied all along and now it's being fulfilled. That's not where he stops. He does not stop with the resurrection. Yes, the death and resurrection are parts of the Gospel. But Peter continues on. Verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Peter continues on to talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So He is exalted. He ascends to heaven so that He can send down the Holy Spirit among His people so that they can be empowered to preach the good news of the Gospel, so that they can be empowered to be a kingdom on earth so that they can reign on earth. He has poured out this that you yourselves are saying, for David did not ascend into the heavens But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And I said many times, this is my eschatology in a verse. Psalm 110.1, the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament verse in the New Testament. This is not some obscure verse. Again, this is the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament verse in the New Testament. This is a prominent theme. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. He takes His seat on David's throne and the Father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the coronation of King Jesus reigning over the nations, over His enemies. And then notice what Peter says. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and King. This Jesus whom you crucified. The Gospel, according to Peter right here in Acts, is this is the life He lived. Miracles. God testified. He died for our sins, if you will. God raised Him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And now He is the King and He is the Lord over the nations. That's the Gospel. That's where it terminates. It terminates on the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the King and Lord. Lord should be obvious. What is a Lord? A a Lord is the one who is over all. 
And the Jews understood this. Caesar was king. Now they're saying Jesus is king. And in the book of Acts, we're going to see that that causes a problem. Because they're going to say, hey, they're advocating that there's another king called Jesus. Yes, that's what they're saying. And they're also telling the people, you do not confess that Caesar is Lord. You confess that Jesus is Lord. And when you confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And one of the reasons why people are not confessing that Jesus is Lord is because we are not preaching that Jesus is Lord. We are just preaching that He died for our sins. We are not preaching that He died for our sins. He rose and now He ascended and He reigns. And you need to confess that He is Lord. And your need needs to bow before this Lord and this King. And you need to serve Him and you need to follow Him. If you don't repent, if you don't believe, you will not enter into the kingdom. And, and we need to see the Gospel in light of the kingdom. When they hear that Jesus is King, that he, that he is Lord, they ask, what shall we do? And they say, repent. So many passages we don't put in the context of the kingdom, but the Bible does. In John 3, Jesus said, be born again. You, you need to be born again. Why do you need to be born again? John 3, 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's why you... You need to be born again. Why do you need to repent? Because according to 1 Corinthians 6, those who are immoral, idolaters, rebels, they, they will not enter the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. You need to repent so that you can enter into the kingdom. That's, that's the Gospel. Our God reigns. This isn't just eschatology. This is gospel. In the kingdom, the gospel and eschatology come together. The gospel that Jesus preached is the gospel of the kingdom. And we serve the King of Kings and we serve the Lord of Lords. And that's the message. That's the good news that we want to get out. Our God Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your faithfulness to Your promises of old to come and to reign. Father, thank You that the greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death, have been defeated on the cross. Father, thank You that through repentance and faith, And our Lord Jesus Christ, we can enter into the kingdom. The only kingdom of which there is no end. Every other kingdom will come to an end, will ultimately be overthrown. But the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will never end. Father, may we see that this is the good news. In Jesus' name. Amen.